Hey guys, it's Hiba, co-founder of Kerning Cultures. Kerning Cultures is an independent podcast company, and we need your help to make these stories possible. We just launched on Patreon, which is a platform that makes it easy for you to financially support this production. Tiers start at $5 a month, and we have all kinds of rewards and Casey swag you'll get in return. Go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Kerning Cultures. Now let's start the show. This episode is the second installment in a two-part series. If you haven't heard part one, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that before starting this episode. In part one, we explore how one family story unveiled a series of events that our history books overlooked. Part one follows the journey of Vietnamese families migrating to Yemen in the 1970s. And today on Kerning Culture is the story of their son and his own experience of migration, a little further west than his parents. This is where we left you last time. Uh, I remember my family dropping me off to the airport. We had our neighbor drive us because he had like a big bus and we could fit all the luggage inside. Farej was on his way to the airport in Yemen, about to fly to America to start a fresh chapter of his life. My mom's lecturing me on the bus ride. You better behave, be well, don't. Make a mess at your aunt's house. Don't eat all their food. My mom didn't break a tear until I walked through the scan gate. That's the only time I, she actually cried when they were prepping the entire thing and came out, I gave her a hug and gave my other siblings a hug and then just headed out. This week, we trace Fetish's new life as he navigates it in California. I'm Dana Balut, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, radio documentaries from the Middle East. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination the streets lost culture. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Well, okay, so give me some background. This is Kerning Culture's producer, Alex Atak. Like how, um, what what were the events leading up to Fedor's yeah. moving to the yeah. U.S.? So event number one, Ant gets married to American. So his Aunt Lynn, wonderful woman, meets Frank, uh, and they move to California. Uh, yeah, it was love at first sight. Plus, I'd been, I'd been contracting for eight and a half years in the Bahamas, Saudi Arabia, and around a lot of places. I was just tired of living out of a suitcase and wanted to settle down. This is Frank, Farage's uncle. He was a contractor at some American companies wanting to do business in the Middle East at the time and was in Yemen visiting in 1979 when he met Farage's aunt through a mutual friend in Sana'a. And I was able to get her out on a tourist visa and get her to the States where we got married. So that's event number one. Event number two uh, is that Farage does really well in school. He's a smart kid. And as the youngest, I think his mom and his two siblings kind of collectively decided that Farage was going to be their star child. And um, uh, I guess they sacrificed to give him an opportunity that uh, they would never get. And the opportunity, of course, was the USA. 
I mean, definitely I wanted to come here and see things. I mean, you get the TV, it tells you everything about it. And it was California that I was heading to, I mean, as planned, because my uh, aunt and uncle live here. Uh, I was really looking forward to it. It was an experience that I wanted to try out. So Fetish's mom calls her sister in California and says, hey, will you take my kid for a while? Um, and can he, can, he, um, can he live with you guys? You know, and if he, according to Fetish's mom, she tells her sister, if he steps out of line, if he does anything wrong, you send him back immediately. And so Fetish applies to like the local community college in, um, in Dixon or around Dixon, I think. And he gets accepted, and he gets a student visa, and off he goes. Directed my flight straight from Yemen to Jordan, and I had this seven-hour layover in Jordan in Queen Alia Airport. And I didn't mind that it was a big airport. First time in my entire life I could see the airport that big. I was roaming around, I was walking. I walked around a lot for quite a while. Next flight was from Jordan to Chicago to O'Hare's International Airport. And uh, what happened is I landed in O'Hare and they, I missed my layover because they're, I mean, it's typical. They had to go through my stuff and all that. They scanned me for about two hours, told me that I missed my flight and gave me a hotel room there. So I got to stay an extra night in Chicago, which was fun. I did not know how to cross the street. I didn't know there was that button you press for the light to turn green. So I was stuck across the road. I didn't know how to get to Wendy's across the street to eat. Wait, you didn't, so you could literally see Wendy's across the street, but you didn't know that you had to push the button? Yes. So it, so it never turned green? Never turned green. And I didn't want to jaywalk, because my first day there is not smart jaywalk. I didn't know what was going to happen. I just went back to the hotel and just had hotel food and slept. And then from Chicago, what happened? Um, Chicago, spent a night there. The shuttle then took me back to the airport, had my flight to San Francisco. That was when I was supposed to meet my family, and I've never met my aunt and uncle before. So it was weird, because I didn't even recognize them when I saw them. They were waving at me really hard, and I was like, why are these people waving at me? <laughs> and then I got close, and I realized it was them, and um, we went back. So my aunt and uncle decided to take me out to get some lamb, Afghani lamb. So they take me to this big restaurant, they gave me a huge tray of rice and a huge like lamb leg. And I start eating out and I remember, I clearly remember this. I look up and my uh, aunt asked me uh, if I need a box, you can get me a box to take the food back home. And I look at her with a straight face. I'm like, why would you need a box? I ended up eating all the food and halfway through my uncle took a picture and I didn't know. He took a picture and sent it to my mom and my mom sent the picture back to me and it was with me munching on the lamb leg and he says underneath caption, we can't afford him if he eats like this taken back. <laughs> I mean, it was a joke, but um, I mean, my mom sent it back in like two minutes and she was like, you better like not eat their fridge out. And I was like, I won't, but I was just hungry. I landed in San Francisco and I thought to myself, this is the life. I mean, I, I don't mind doing this. It's a nice big city. It's diverse. It looks beautiful. And we started driving up towards Oakland. And we drive up further towards the countryside. We end up in a little tiny town called Dixon. It's a very conservative uh, city. I mean, I'm probably like the third Middle Eastern there or the fourth Middle Eastern there. I mean, there's no Middle Easterns there, barely any people of color. You can you get some looks walking out the street. You definitely feel that they're not very um, 
comfortable, I'd say, or just familiar with having someone of my skin tone walking around. Uh, <laughs> the cops are not, <laughs> they're not the biggest fans of me. Within my first month, I got pulled over by a cop because I was riding a bike, and he said I matched a profile for someone who just robbed Home Depot. And all I had on me was just my phone, and I was on a bike. I mean, like, where was I going to put the stuff that I robbed? <laughs> So um, he ended up getting my ID and everything. And I was like, oh, I guess it's not you. You just came from school. I was like, yeah. When Fetish applied for his visa to America and when he first arrived, President Barack Obama was still at the White House. But not long after that, this sea of change was taking place. Right now, a historic moment. Uh, Donald Trump wins the presidency. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. President Trump today retweeted anti-Muslim videos posted by the leader of a far-right extremist party in Britain. The threat posed by the Trump ban could impact on a way of life, not just a specific religious group. Did Trump being president directly impact your life? Um... Personally, like on a personal scale, um, not really. I mean, I I grew I live in a small conservative city. It just made them more outgoing about it, which was not much of a big change. I mean, what do you mean more outgoing about it? I mean, soon after Trump, you start having there was some anti-Muslim rallies. Some guy giving flyers out in front of Safeway where I used to work. I, I look Hispanic, so he didn't bother me. He actually asked me if I wanted the flyer, and I was like. Well, no, thank you. <laughs> what did the flyers say? Um, I mean, they mostly criticized. They're like, no, um, um, ban Muslims, anti-Muslims, or something like that. And uh, I, I picked them. I picked one up eventually because he left his stand and all that, and there were papers. I was curious to see what's inside, and it was, um, it was uh, trying to say that um, Muslims invoke violence in communities, and they'll kill you and they'll attack you. Dear listeners, bear with me. I want to take a step back a bit to review. So in 2014, Faraj moved to the U.S. on a student visa because he got accepted to a community college, right? But the downside of that kind of visa is that you can only work either on a college campus or if you want a job outside of college campus, there are very specific rules about doing that that would allow for it to be legal. So basically, you can't really get real work. And if you can't make money, well, that's not really an option for Fetej because he needs to pay for his university bills. But he can't pay for his university without a job. And if he can't pay for university, then you eventually lose your student visa. And without a student visa, you become unwelcome. That is true. So enough, I'm probably going to become what they call an illegal alien. Originally, my family was supposed to help me sustain financially here. Situation got a lot worse in Yemen. Most of my family members had lost their jobs back then. I couldn't afford paying my school semesters. So as the situation there got worse, temporary protective status, or a TPS as it's known, was designated for Yemenis living in the U.S. And this happened on September 3rd, 2015, a year after Fadej came to the U.S. That exact definition of TPS is the following. The Secretary of Homeland Security may designate a foreign country for TPS due to conditions in the country that temporarily prevent the country's nationals from returning to safety, like war, 
or in certain circumstances where the country is unable to handle the return of its nationals adequately. So other countries under TPS, for example, are Somalia, El Salvador, Nepal, and under TPS, Fedej, a Yemeni national living in the U.S., could actually work legally. By the time I got to work, I was barely making enough to pay for the classes that I was already taking and all that. I started off, at, my first job was a courtesy clerk at Safeway. So I was pushing carts. I did that for about three months, got promoted front end. And then a few months afterwards, I picked up my tutoring job. You're the head tutor at the tutoring center. So I coordinate all the other tutors. I do the notes, um, the tutoring material, science fairs, any science events. I've usually had them or run them. I did landscaping too. I picked that up after probably a couple of months to make extra cash here and there. So it's probably averaged out to around 60, 70 hours a week of work. How much would you make? Approximately came out to around 1,500 a month, maybe a bit less. Did you have a social life? Um, throughout that period of time, no. Spending that much time working and schooling doesn't really cut you much time to socialize and meet people. So although in July 2018, the Secretary of Homeland Security announced the decision to extend TPS designation for Yemen through 2020, Fetish's status does not get renewed. And I don't know if there's any direct link to the Trump administration taking over, so I'm not going to make that link. But I'm going to say that it wouldn't be far-fetched. Because basically in 2017, his application for TPS doesn't get rejected, but it does not get renewed. Fetish calls them a couple times a year and they've continued to just say it's pending. Usually, just for reference, in the past it only took him a month or two to get the status renewed. So Safeway, as my TPS expired end of 2017, and the day after my Safeway got an email from the government notifying them that, well, his employment has expired, so you guys have to let him go. And I got a two-week extended period because my boss liked me. She was like, we'll give you two more weeks. Just get as much work as you can done and just we can't do anything about it. So he is no, lo no longer able to work legally. And so he got this letter from Safeway saying, we, sorry, we can't employ you anymore. So he lost that legal job, which created this financial crisis for him, right? Which is... Um, a $15,000 debt to his school. That also means that his school will no longer accept him in the next semester, uh, which means he loses his student visa. So by the end of the year, Fadej will have lost his temporary protective status and his student visa due to the debt. So it, it's, like a, it's like a cycle, right? What happens is you learn to deal with it. You learn how to cope and just exist with it. We call it numbing it out. So you have to just know that all that you're doing, everything that's happening, you just got to keep your goal on your mind and just move forward to it. That's all you can do. You'd rather live with pride than swallow your pride and choke on it. So at this point, Faraj is 23 years old, and he's not really sure what to do next. 
He's losing his legal status in America, but cannot go back to Yemen. First, we begin with a developing story out of Yemen, and suicide bombers have targeted at least two mosques in the capital, Sana'a. The United Nations is warning that if the war continues, famine could engulf Yemen in the next three months. Yemen is a country that is in meltdown. There's not really a word to describe that. It's, I mean, it's hard to explain. It's hard to express out. Um, it puts you in a place that you really don't want to be in. Seeing everything you knew, everything you grew up to, being reduced to rubble, being told that your people, the population, that, that your entire country is going down to the drain, it just makes you feel powerless. It makes you feel hopeless. It's that. Your home is not your home anymore. Your home is not the same place you grew up in. It's being taken away and all you can do is just watch. How does that reflect in your life here? How does that translate? Yeah, I mean, I don't even talk to my families about my hardships here and difficulties here. If I, I do owe my school a lot of money, I do go through a lot of work hours, I do go through all that, but I would never withstand being able to complain to my family because at the end of the day, I will be complaining about material things while they're complaining about, well, there's an airstrike next to the house. The house just shook, windows just blew, we have no food, people are getting sick, people are dying. So it gives you, you you get the emotional strand that they're going through, but you don't get the physical one, so that does not give you a liberty to complain. What happens now? There's a lot up in the air now, because... Even, I mean, even if my TPS status gets renewed, that just buys me an extra year and then it's transfer out and it's having to pay the rest. Same amount of stuff, work, 60 hours a week to barely maintain what I'm affording now, not even paying off what I previously had. Even if my student visa renews for another year, that's just more debt for me just collecting up because I can't legally work. Um, so best alternative is just get out, find somewhere else. What do you mean by that? What I mean is, if you have to survive rather than thrive in your community, then it's not where you're supposed to be. You're, you're supposed to be living life, not struggling to get through day by day. You mentioned the option of crossing into Canada. Is that something you're serious about? That's the most reliable plan that I have now. So this all originated when two people that I, well, the Yemenis that I know that were in the same predicament as me just packed up and just drove into Canada. And so other Yemenis that I knew, people that I grew up with, people that I went to school with started migrating one by one. And soon enough, my best friend called me and he was like, have you heard about everyone going? And I was like, yes. And he was like, you might want to consider it because I'm leaving soon. And you want to hop on, I'll take you with me. And I was like, sounds good. And what does your family think of that? Um, there is no support of any sort from both sides. Do you have like a, a vision of your future professionally and personally? Not a single bit. There is just a big void or blank. And that's 
pretty much all I can see is, as far as I can see, is what's going on tomorrow. I can't reach anywhere further than that. And just perceiving the next day, it's still hard enough. Every single day is, what will you do tomorrow? How will you get by today? Farouz, in an ideal uh, world, what would your life look like right now? I mean, it's probably waking up at seven in the morning and smelling some hygiene in the kitchen. My mom would be baking. And the whole house would smell like pastries. Sometimes you just go buy them from the store and just make a cup of coffee and just sit at the table with like sunlight breaking in, looking at her backyard with all the green plants. Uh, with my mom making her infamous Vietnamese food in the kitchen. Uh, on a weekend, we're all just eating at the table, just talking all over each other in Vietnamese, laughing, enjoying a peaceful life. So this is one version of what modern Arab immigration to the U.S. looks like today. It's a complicated web of visas, bureaucracy, financial headaches in your new country, while simultaneously worrying about your family, your neighborhood, and your country back home. And Faraj's story, with its twists and turns, is not an extraordinary or extreme example either. All around the country, men and women are trying to make the best of the hand life has dealt them. But in Faraj's case, he found a way to go way, way beyond what anybody would expect of him. Can you, can you explain what you're looking at right now? I'm looking at my right uh, arm. It has a huge circular bruising size of a dime, maybe, with a big red hole in the middle. It's kind of bruised up. Looks kind of yellow in the middle, which is scary but weird. Uh, it's right on the vein which they drew the blood from. End of September uh, 2018, I meet Faraj in San Diego. I take a train down from Los Angeles. Uh, it's like a three-hour train, two-and-a-half-hour train ride down. And I meet Faraj in San Diego because he was donating um, stem cells. How it happened is I was approached three years ago on campus by a small table, just two people sitting there, and they asked me if I wanted to donate bone marrow. And I just said, okay, it sounds, it sounds like a work of fiction, because they also told me, like, my ethnicity is probably not going to match up with anything else. I'm Middle Eastern Vietnamese, so it's hard to come by someone who's like, going to narrow down to that. But I signed up for it, and about a year later, they contacted me, told me that I am a match with someone. They confirmed that I'm the most suitable donor, and they began running a lot of lab tests and stuff on me. I was getting like my blood drawn every other month, and like it was a lot of like shots, blood donations, checkups, physicals here and there. They walked me through what's gonna happen. They told me like where they're gonna inject me. I was going through a lot of uh, heavy symptoms because they had to give us a drug to induce our stem cell production. So I was going through a lot of migraines, a lot of achy joints, back pains, uh, fever, nausea. I was throwing up all over the place. So I looked like a mess. I was, I looked like a zombie walking in. And um, they just hooked me up to the bed, gave me some Tylenol, told me like after this, as soon as they draw the stem cells out of me, I'm gonna feel a lot better. So I just told them, hook me up right there. Uh, and it's, it is voluntary. It's not like, I mean, and I, I, he doesn't get anything out of it, I don't think. So can you, um, I mean, when you asked him, like, why he did it, what, what, like, what, what did he say? Because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> it just, I mean, 
the way I look at it is it's just doing what's right. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing in the world. You're supposed to be giving when you can. I mean, it's not going to harm me on the long term. In fact, it's not going to have any negative terms on me. So why not give when I can? So it just feels it's like right. I'm just hoping it's someone that would make best out of it. I find this event so fascinating because here is Farage, only 24 years old, new to the country, and within a couple years has found a way to quite literally and hopefully save someone's life. For free, by the way. But I find this form of giving back to a country that is hosting you particularly moving. Because no matter where you stand, religiously or spiritually, there is something quite magical about what happens next. So... Ex- explain to me what's happening now. So I told you I know Fetish through mutual friends, right? Um, and so after I found out about Fetish's $15,000 uh, debt to his school and his plans to head up to the Canadian border and just cross it and figure out what to do in his words, so no plan at all, basically, um, I, I reached out to our mutual friends And I told them the situation and um, they collectively basically um, promised Farej that they would pay, they would raise money to pay, uh, pay off his debt and allow him to stay and help him get transferred to a university where he can continue his education. Actually, in addition to our friends, Farej's aunts and uncle, Frank and Lynn, are also helping him pay off his loan. And as of last week, his student visa has been renewed for another year. He's applied to over 10 schools to get transferred out of community college and enter a university to get a bachelor's degree in engineering. So that's karma for you, and a good note to end on ahead of the holiday season. This episode was produced by myself, Dana Balutz, and the wonderful Alex Atak, with editorial support by the beautiful Hiba Fisher. Sound designed by the talented Mohamed Khrezat. And thank you to the extraordinary Bella Brahim for help in getting all this stuff online and looking pretty for you. I want to take a second to say a few things. First, thank you to Faraj again for being such an inspiration to all of us at Kerning Cultures. Faraj also wants us to particularly thank his aunt and uncle who have been hosting him since he got to the U.S. and supported him in so many ways, but most of all in their love and encouragement. Second, and this is really important, so hang in there with me. If you listen to the first episode, you'll remember that I met Faraj at a screening of the film Shake the Dust that features breakdancers and hip-hop artists in Yemen, Cambodia, Colombia, and Uganda. Well now, a fund has been created to provide scholarships, grants, and donations to the organizations and individuals in the Shake the Dust global community. And this includes helping people like Faraj, as well as so many amazing young people pursuing their dreams and changing their countries and communities. Help us help them by going to shakethedustimpact.org. Again, shakethedustimpact.org. Check it out, and more information will be online on our website. Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy New Year. We love you all. And until next time.